grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Heavenly Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Are we there yet? I can, with clarity and purpose, announce to you we have arrived. We are there. It's the last week of our sermon series on 1 Timothy. We come to the, to the final chapter in his book. It all comes down to this. And maybe if you've ever been on a trip and you can see your destination in sight, you know this is where it all falls apart. Maybe in your own life and in your own travels, as you've been nearing your destination, you've come and, and you have almost arrived, and all of a sudden, things which were peaceful and calm, things which had no problems, all of a sudden explode in the seats behind you. And the question, are we there yet, reverberates through our lives. This happened to me yesterday as we were getting so close to home. We had just visited mom for, for a couple of days to kind of say goodbye to a place that I had lived for, for nearly 30 years of my life. A place that, that really, when you understand it, probably shouldn't be taken care of by one person alone. And, and I think it gives us an idea of what our faith is like when we try to do things we shouldn't be doing. When we try to go alone, it, it doesn't work. This is a travel, this is a trip in the Christian faith we all take together. And, and this is the, the, the final, right? This is, this is it. After we're done with this sermon series, I mean, we're all good Christian people now and we'll be ready to go. But we're getting, we're getting to the exit before the exit last night on 69. And anytime we see this exit, there's like a relief. <sighs> Lake Nepissing. Oh, we're almost home. One exit to go. The next exit's Lapeer, Oxford, and it'll be a short 15-minute, 20-minute you know, commute down Oxford, and the wheels fall off of the trip. And it always seems to happen like that. When we feel like we're making the most progress, when we feel like we're doing the best, our wheels fall off. 1 Timothy 6, we're going to be focusing on what's foolish and wise. Because it's foolish, it really is, to think that we can approach our lives, this life that God has given each one of us individually, and believe that we can live it as individuals. As if somehow I could go through life on my own without any input from any other person is crazy, and yet that is exactly what we try to do sometimes with our faith. We struggle, and, and we suffer, and we say, hey, I can handle this. This is what God has given me. I'm going to do it. And really, that's not what God gives you. That is foolish to think that you can handle something on your own, without looking to your brothers and sisters in Christ, who are the very body of Christ given for you, and looking to Jesus who is the head. And so my prayer for us is that as we exit the vehicle, as we get onto the rest of our Christian lives, we would be wise for the kingdom of God, and we would recognize we need one another. Timothy in chapter 6 says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. 
And you see, Timothy is doing nothing other than echoing the words of Jesus, who, while he was walking the earth, spoke in the Sermon on the Mount, one of his longest recorded messages. He said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You know, there's a question anytime uh, we get into a discussion about faith and doctrine and purpose and belief that one of our elders here at Holy Cross asks every single time. Unless Tate says, quite simply, what does Scripture say? It's a simple question, but we give all sorts of answers to it. And Paul is warning us because Jesus warned us that people will try to take you away from what Scripture says. Compare everything you hear to what God has already revealed in Scripture. In our Hebrew sermon series, we saw that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. This is the comparison that we make to every single word we hear. Whether it's from right here in this pulpit, whether it's in your car on the ride home, whether it's on the TV or the radio or in social media, you compare every word you hear to the word which has already been revealed to you in Scripture. Because there are a lot of words out there that are going to say you're not good enough, that you don't measure up, that you need more, that you need something else, you need to do more or be more. And God says, I am enough for you. Paul talks a little bit about money in this chapter. This is also not a stewardship message. Paul says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. And this, again, is an echo. Paul is echoing what has already been written, what has already been heard. And this one goes back to Job, to the Old Testament. Job chapter 1. Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. And without the context, we're just thinking like, well, why is is Job talking about childbirth? But this is his, his lament, his cry, his sadness. Job had just lost everything he owns, but more importantly, he had just discovered all of his children dead. This would not be my response unless God put the words in my mouth. I mean, I yelled at them no less than nine hours ago, but if God took them from me, This would, this would, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. No, I'd be like, no, God, give me my family back. It's what I've already said about 
my dad. It's why I'm bitter and angry, even though it's the best decision that could possibly be made for mom's sake. Of course, sell my childhood, the thing I have more attachment to than the home I grew up in. I mean, am I responding like Job? Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. I don't, I don't think I can unless God puts those words into my mouth and into your mouth. We are always foolish until God makes us wise. Martin Luther said, Fool is the title that stands above all earthly treasures. Look at the facts, he said. God supplies what we need so abundantly we cannot use it up. We see him place these things into our hands and we're surrounded by an abundance of all good things and yet we keep on scraping. I mean, which of you in the morning has ever woken up without oxygen to breathe? I mean, maybe the sun is a little hard to see today, but we can still feel its presence, and and certainly we can wipe the sweat from our foreheads. But we gather and we scrape and we accumulate, but God gives freely and richly to all of us things that will last and endure far longer than this life will ever be. There's a parable Jesus tells in Luke 12 about the, the foolish ruler. This guy is so rich and has so much, he decides, I need to tear down what I have and build bigger and he finishes this project and he does everything to, to keep and to preserve what he has. And that very night, he dies. And God says, these things you have prepared, whose will they be? And so if we're trying to cultivate things and possessions as the gifts we pass on to the next generation, we too are foolish. The most important thing we can pass on to the next generation is the thing that is free, but of tremendous value. Paul tells us in the middle of the passage, he says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, Luther called this the alphabet of Christian virtues. You teach your kids the ABCs. I do, and I will, and I'll continue to try to raise them up in in what they need to know for the world, but am I teaching them and raising them up for what needs to be known for eternity? The very next verse, once we've been armed with the ABCs, Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Right? These are easy words to say. But it's something else entirely to train ourselves for this fight. And to have our response to life's pressures and pains be something where we instinctively share the gospel.
with ourselves and with others. Right? What's the good fight of faith? I think each one of us would be able to testify in our own way the, the attacks of Satan, the harm that he wishes to give to us. And he says, be prepared so that you may take hold of that which is truly life. I mean, am I holding on to a, to a cottage that I might go to once or twice a summer? Or am I holding on to the relationship that I have with my mom who showed me Jesus so that we can continue to grow in faith and love together? Right, Paul says, seek God. Pursue God. Follow God so that you may take hold of that which is truly life. The very end of the passage, Paul starts talking about what to do if you're rich. What do you do if God has blessed you in this life? And, and really, this is something I think we struggle with as Americans because we get into that comparison mindset where we look to our neighbors and we look to the commercials and we look to social media and we compare ourselves to what we can see and what we can hear. But if we compared ourselves to all humans who have ever lived, we today would be able to confess to each other that we live like kings and queens and princes and princesses. I mean, if you are here this morning, my guess is that in the last week, maybe even the last day, you have taken a bath or a shower, which in previous times would have only been reserved for the richest of the rich. And you drove here probably this morning in a chariot, an iron chariot that has no horses pulling it, and yet still glides along on the road. We are rich. We are blessed. And so, what does Martin Luther say about the end of this this chapter? He says, an enthusiasm for generosity is the source of all good things. Paul says of the rich, they are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. If we're greedy and we're holding on to what we have, we're neglecting what God gives. The same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Like, not only should we, as Americans living in 2018, do good, but we should do good more abundantly than anyone else who has ever lived. Because we've been more richly blessed than anyone who else who has ever lived. But more than the material blessings, Paul closes his letter 
with the eternal blessing that Timothy was given. And it's Paul's words to Timothy, but it's the Holy Spirit's words to you. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. This is a divine trust that God has given every single one of us. And he tells us and warns us repeatedly, compare what you have received to everything that you will hear later. Be wise for the kingdom of God. Be wise for the words which will come and seek to steal you away. Jesus alone is the source of all life and all hope. He delivered his grace and his forgiveness through his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. And we cry out because sometimes we feel like we are nearing the end. Are we there yet? And when... And, and when life, your life, starts falling off the rails because the trip is nearly over, remember, the trip is already over. In Christ, you have arrived. Salvation begins now. There is no waiting to get to our destination. Jesus has already given you life forever, and it starts now. Are we there yet? Yes, we are. How do I know? Because Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we give you abundant thanks that Christ is risen. And that when we ask the question, when we struggle, are we there yet? You tell us yes because of your son's death and resurrection. Lord, help us to be wise. Help us to share love and grace and mercy, which you have first given to us. This we pray through the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.